0: Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically.
1: We had the whole setup. We had the whole thing with a separate recording, and then he failed to hit record on his iPhone, and we had to use the backup audio. And so we tell this to everybody so that they feel better about themselves because they did not screw up.
0: Well, I hope that I've done it correctly. I will be sending it to you later. (laughs) You can let me know.
2: Welcome, everyone, to Give Me Shelter, the California housing crisis podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters.
1: And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing affordability with the Los Angeles Times.
2: And today, Tuesday, September 7th, 2021, we're talking about the recall election taking place in California next week and a boogeyman that's emerged in the housing discussion among the candidates.
1: Yes, it is the California Environmental Quality Act, better known by its acronym CEQA, or really all the with-it folks call it CEQA.
2: So yeah, we're going to be walking through the main recall candidates' housing plans and doing a bit of myth-busting when it comes to this law that everyone loves to hate, which, as I learned in my reporting is just one of the many levers that cities and neighborhood groups can use to delay or block housing. And to get into that, we have the perfect guest.
1: Yeah, so we're going to be joined by Moira O'Neill. She's an associate research scientist of city and regional planning and a senior research fellow at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley.
2: But first...
1: We have the avocado of the fortnight, our biweekly look at the most absurd housing story in all of California in recent weeks.
2: You found this one, Liam, and you kind of had to break it down for me. So why don't you walk us through it?
1: Yeah, so here I was enjoying a Friday night before the Labor Day weekend with a movie and perhaps a beverage or two. And of course, I made a critical mistake of opening Twitter. And so what did I find when I did that? A two and a half minute video of Japanese anime characters having a debate in a cartoon courtroom over academic affordable housing research.
2: That sounds like a great Friday night. (laughs) And what did you find?
1: (laughs) Right, so of course, kind of tough to describe this video on a podcast and most of the action, if you will, takes place in captions, but we're gonna play some of the audio here so you get a flavor.
2: That sounds like a battle, (laughs) a lot of action going on there. So yeah, what were we seeing if we were actually watching this video? So the context that this was
1: a four-part academic dispute between mostly UCLA professors,
2: that's really not the image I hear when I, <laughs> <laughs> not the image I see when I hear that, but <laughs> okay.
1: Yes, this is what makes it so exciting. On the one side, it was Pavo Munkanen, Mike Lenz, and Mike Manville. And they, their position, they contend that restrictive local zoning and lack of overall supply are key features of housing affordability problems in California and other high cost areas. And their opponents on the other side, Andres rodriguez Posey and Michael Storper, ever for- They argue that adding unrestricted supply misunderstands how cities and housing markets work, and doing so may exacerbate gentrification and displacement in those cities. So the overall debate is actually a pretty good back and forth on the state of academic literature on these issues. No doubt, of course, a cartoon is a fun way for people to familiarize themselves with it, even though my response to this video on Twitter was to call it the nerdiest thing I've ever seen.
2: It also goes a little bit too fast. I had to pause it a couple of (laughs) times. to follow the captions but I thought it was great and that actually got like almost a thousand likes I think and really shows how active people are on Twitter on the housing debate but I think also just shows that this debate that we discussed a little bit last time is not only going on among activists and neighborhood groups and legislators but even academics who study this, stay in and out, are battling over zoning, so.
1: Yes, even in anime courtrooms, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So a credit to Ansel Lundberg, Sacramento. He's the one who sort of put this together on Twitter, so good job. And for those who are interested in the actual academic debate beyond just the cartoon version, we will put links to all the papers that issue in our show notes. Okay, so let's get to our main topic of the day. This is the gubernatorial recall and sequa. So just a couple of kind of housekeeping things on how to vote in this gubernatorial recall. Remember, it is very strange, but there is a two-part question on the ballots that you should have already received in the mail or what you're going to see when you walk into a polling place on September 14th. The first question is, do you want Governor Gavin Newsom to be recalled? And that's a yes or no question. And the second question is, if he were to be recalled, who of these dozens of folks would you like to replace him? And Governor Newsom cannot be a candidate, is not a candidate on that second question. You can answer one question, you can answer both questions, but it doesn't matter if current Governor Newsom clears, if more people say no, then yes, and the second question doesn't matter, and so that, that doesn't matter ultimately. If more people say yes, than no, and he is recalled, then whoever finishes first, even if it's a small percentage among the replacement candidates is the one who will be governor very soon. So with that, polls show that Governor Newsom is in a strong position. But as I said, the way this works, anyone in that bottom list could be elected governor. And the race is mainly among like kind of the higher profile candidates, is made up of Republicans with a few Democrats. And in fact, the leading candidate is, according to the polls, Larry Elder, a conservative talk radio host. So Manuela, since you've been watching this race much more closely than me, it sounds like all of the major candidates have been pretty critical of the governor's housing and homelessness record.
2: Yeah. So before we get into what each of the candidates has to say, I think it would be helpful, Liam, if you give us a quick rundown of what exactly the current governor has promised and actually accomplished on housing.
1: The governor, Newsom, campaigned on a really incredibly ambitious housing agenda. Most notably, as we've said a million times, he's pushed for the building of three and a half million new homes by 2025. That rate would roughly quintuple the state's annual housing production. Beyond that figure, he generally promised much more action on housing than his predecessors.
2: So how'd he do?
1: Yeah, so before we get into things he didn't do, I think it is very fair to him to note that the governor has done some pretty high-profile things on housing. First year, he signed into law and helped negotiate a statewide cap on annual rent increases for most rental housing that aimed to ban sort of super high rent hikes. And then during the pandemic, he used federal dollars to support the purchase of some hotels and motels, which was turned into thousands of new rooms for homeless housing. And by all accounts, it seems like he's likely to sign a bill, and this is what we discussed in the last episode, that would end single-family home-only zoning in the state. Plus, you know, his housing department seems to be acting much more aggressively in pushing cities to allow for More zone and allow for more housing. Now, all that being said, the governor has not really put forward any plans that match the boldness of his initial promises than when he was campaigning. And I think for your kind of average person on the ground, seeing record high home prices, now rebounding rent prices, and almost certainly, although we don't have like official stats on this yet, rising homelessness during his time in office, you could see why this may be sort of an area of vulnerability for him, both in terms of what he has not accomplished based on his promises and kind of what the state of things are on the ground. So let's talk about what exactly these potential replacement candidates are proposing when it comes to housing.
2: Yeah. So CalMatter had these forums where we invited each of the candidates to talk about their policy positions. So I got to ask a few of them what they would do on housing. And all of them, like Newsom before them, said that they would increase production in the state. But the ideas that they proposed weren't exactly groundbreaking. The one idea they all had in common was that they wanna either repeal or reform CEQA, that Environmental Quality Act, which we'll get into in a minute. So to go into a few more specifics on each of the leading candidates, Larry Elder, who you just mentioned, said that his main priority would be to suspend or waive CEQA. And he said that was one of the main causes of the state's homelessness crisis in addition to the state's other sort of heavy rules and regulations. Kevin Paffrath, he's a YouTuber, a real estate broker, and he's one of the few Democrats. He also said he would reform CEQA and reduce developer fees. And his main idea is to build new communities outside of existing cities and to offset that carbon footprint because of all of the added Miles traveled for people to actually get to work. He proposed building new wind and solar farms to power those. So his ideal community, for example, he pointed to is River Park in Oxnard, which has about 3,000 homes, police department, fire department, everything kind of self-contained. Then you've got John Cox. He is a businessman, and he worked for several years as a developer in Indiana. So his idea is also to build outside of the existing cities. He says there's so much of California that has not been developed. Why aren't we building over there? And to accomplish that, he also would scrap CEQA for housing and shorten the timeframe for project approvals and reduce impact fees. And finally, the last candidate I talked to was Assemblyman Kevin Kiley, who's a Republican from Rocklin. And he also wants to reform CEQA slash permitting fees. And he would develop housing mostly along transport corridors and land outside of cities as well.
1: So a lot of themes here about everybody wanting to kind of build outside of states, kind of main urban areas.
2: Exactly. And the last candidate who wants to build a little bit more along those transport corridors, who I didn't get to speak to because his campaign never got back to us on these Zoom calls. But Liam, who you've covered pretty extensively, is Kevin Faulkner. Former mayor of San Diego. What's his track record on housing?
1: So, Faulkner was the mayor of San Diego from 2013 up until this year. On homelessness, he at first oversaw a hepatitis outbreak that was concentrated in the city's homeless community. And so that was obviously a major concern. But later on, he has taken credit for San Diego at least not seeing some of the same increases in its homeless population that. L.A. and San Francisco have. And on housing, when he was mayor, he put forward a pretty aggressive strategy of increasing allowable development near transit, as you mentioned, even in a state of the city speech, branded himself a YIMBY. And in fact, we did an interview with Faulkner on the podcast a few years ago, so you can go check that out if you want more on his ideas. But even in San Diego, though, he's kind of shied away from proposing significant density changes to single-family zoned areas. And then during the campaign, he's gone even further than that, right?
2: So while he said he also wants to reform CEQA and his focus is on that housing growth near jobs and transit, in a recent debate, he said that these pieces of legislation that want to eliminate single-family zoning in California, he said, that's wrong. I will veto that. So this was a discussion about SB 9 and 10, That pretty much goes for all the candidates, save for a yes vote from Kylie on SB10, the bill that allows cities to rezone single-family parcels. The candidates all say that they favor local control on zoning, uh, housing issues.
1: So how would you assess these candidates positions here? I mean, except for PATHRATH, these are all Republicans that we've talked about and talking big about major changes to CEQA, which, you know, a law that is huge support in a overwhelmingly Democratic-controlled state legislature. So how would they do it?
2: Right. So I brought up the fact that many of the streamlining bills that we've seen in the legislature in recent years, SB 35, for example, which we talked about all take a massive amount of political capital to move through and working with major power players in the legislature, like labor and environmentalists. And none of them really seem to have good solid plan on how they would work together with these interest groups to actually move legislation forward other than using their bully pulpit to influence legislation. So they talk a big game on reforming CEQA, but when it actually comes down to getting it done, it seems pretty hard to imagine that actually going through.
1: And it struck me too, a lot of them have brought up kind of the idea of building outside of cities, putting aside whether that would be good for affordability or good for the climate or not. Most places around the state now, we can see that we're in the middle of another really horrible wildfire season occurring in areas of the state where there is less intense development. Did any of these folks have any details on how they deal with some of the problems like this with building on the fringes?
2: We can see and definitely smell the wildfires, and no, none of them really, other than Pafra, who suggested creating these wind and solar farms, which I don't really know how he would pay for, to sort of offset the impact on the environment. Most of them spoke, particularly elders, spoke about scaling back a lot of environmental regulations, not really taking a lot into account these issues of climate change.
1: I mean, it almost seems like there's a bit of a contradiction in these candidates' ideas. They're talking about building a lot more housing, but then also very much deferring to cities to decide if they're ultimately going to approve the housing that they candidates say they want. Is that right?
2: That's correct. I mean, you summed it up perfectly. They're saying that they want to build a lot more, but they're going to leave it up to the cities who pull the permits to actually make that final decision. Mm -hmm. And that sounds a lot like what housing policy has been like for the last 50 years.
1: Uh, Right, yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's a a bit misleading to say that you'll leave it up to cities, but that the housing will get built. There's a a missing piece there that they didn't really address either when I asked about what they would do about those cities or groups who wanted to keep blocking housing. So since they all talked about CEQA, we thought that it would be good to have a primer on what exactly it does and doesn't do. This is the act signed into law by Republican Governor Ronald Reagan way back in 1970. Liam, how would you best sum up CEQA?
1: So it's essentially a law that requires developers to disclose a project's potential environmental effects on the surrounding community and then take steps to reduce or eliminate them. This all sounds simple enough, but what happens, and this is kind of built up over the 50 years of CEQA's been in existence, is this process can often turn into these like thousand page blobs of environmental documents that chart everything from soil samples to traffic to supposed shadows a project may cast, and then successful court challenges accusing those of violating Seekwook and send a project back to square one. And so it can be this sort of dicey proposition for those who want to push a project forward. The whole process, you know, a lawsuit or not can sometimes take years. In these CEQA debates, you also get a lot of like, on the one hand, CEQA has helped preserve California's natural beauty, mountains, streams, etc. And then on the other hand, you get a lot of kind of absurd outcomes that I think most people would think further the state's environmental goals or really kind of allow for an abuse of those rules.
2: So walk me through kind of a highlight reel. What are some major projects that have been held up because of CEQA?
1: So like forever, CEQA has been used to kind of stop the installation of bike lanes up and down the state on the grounds that those lanes don't take into account, other supposed effects on traffic. There's a famous case out of San Jose where a gas station owner used a CEQA case to prevent a rival gas station from opening across the street. And there's this kind of panoply of neighborhood groups, rival businesses, labor groups, etc., that have used real or threatened CEQA cases to extract things like more parking or a smaller building or construction worker wage premiums, etc. And sort of you find a lot of this kind of leveraging of CEQA in the housing debates as well.
2: So it's this kind of way also for interest groups to get concessions. I won't bring up a lawsuit as long as you hire certain type of workers for this project, et cetera. And one of the things that I found in trying to look at sort of the cost of this law is that those things are really hard to quantify and to actually study how often all that backdoor dealing actually occurs. So I talked with Jennifer Hernandez, a prominent attorney in the CEQA debate, and in her research, she found that a majority of projects that are sued under CEQA, include housing, as opposed to the huge public works projects that the law was originally designed for. And they aren't always litigated by people or groups with environmental ties. Backing up this idea, she argues that the law is used by NIMBYs and other groups to block projects in bad faith. Something else about the law is that there isn't really a timeline or deadlines. So a project can get approved, but still be sued after the fact. And those costs are mostly eaten up by the developers. And so all of this can add significant time and costs for the developers, whether they're producing a report to study the environmental impact or actually fighting a lawsuit. And for bigger projects, that bulletproofing against a potential lawsuit can take dozens of experts and hiring all these people. So it can really add a lot of delays and costs.
1: So Jennifer's research kind of looks at projects that have been sued, but, you know, there's <laughs> a lot of housing projects that don't get sued under suka right? Like what do those, the broader numbers here show?
2: Right. And that's sort of the thing. So in other research that zoomed way out and looked at how many projects that were approved actually ever were litigated, that number is closer to the single digits. And according to some researchers, even less than 1%. Ah. In other words, CEQA can be pretty notorious in adding time or holding up a development, but it's not actually blocking that many projects. In looking at these lawsuits, some researchers found that it's rarely the only reason that a project is getting sued. There's often other things tacked on. So that's one of the complicated things about CEQA is when you're looking at the lawsuits, they form a very small part of the total blocks, but there are all those other things that we discussed that haven't really been quantified that are really hard to quantify that can get in the way. But at the end of the day, what these other experts looked at is that it's all part of this local approving of a project. And that's where CEQA comes in, that all these other excuses can be brought up to block a project. For example, that it's too close to the sidewalk. And so they'll bring it back 20 feet instead of 15 feet. But then there's something wrong with the building material. And so the city council can say, this doesn't really go with our style, should be limestone, not this other material. So the developer needs to come back with other plans. And that process can take years.
1: Okay, so like what are some of, why don't we call them uh, you know good faith arguments for why CEQA is important?
2: By good faith, you mean actually environmental Yes, 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 exactly, yes. (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm,
2: mm -hmm. Yeah, so even when it comes to preserving housing stock, one group that I spoke with in Fresno Leadership Council for Justice and Accountability, they've sued over CEQA multiple industrial developments, including an Amazon warehouse, over the impact that that could have on residents of the area. And so they brought up, for example, dust from construction seeping into nearby housing structures or houses shaking repeatedly when thousands of trucks roll by or worsening air pollution in some of the area's most polluted zip codes, mostly for low-income communities of color. They said these would never be addressed if it wasn't for CEQA. And interestingly, She said that in many of these Central Valley developments, CEQA never even really gets brought up unless this type of group uses it. So it really depends too on how many neighbors you have and how many groups you have who actually want to block a project. found that interesting that it doesn't necessarily always get brought up because of its environmental merits, but rather how many people are actually paying attention. And I think another argument that I heard in favor of Sequa that I wasn't all that familiar with was also its role in sort of preserving existing housing stock.
1: One of the reasons in part I think it's been easier to build greenfield new sprawl developments is uh, cows can't sue under Sequa.
2: Exactly.
1: Okay, so like at the end of the
2: day, this whole thing
1: does seem pretty complicated, and even politics side complications of you know, it being used to further some environmental goals, but perhaps not others, is one of the reasons it's been so difficult to change CEQA. So even if all these recall candidates, one of them were elected and, and were successful in getting rid of CEQA entirely, let's say, how much would you think that actually changed things on the ground when it comes to housing?
2: If that's the only thing that was done, I'm not sure that we would see as big of a change or unleash this building frenzy that these candidates propose. Because at the end of the day, it really is just one more tool to be used to block housing projects and all these other tools would still remain.
1: Well, let's get into some more details of this with our guest, Moira.
2: So we're joined by Moira O'Neill, Associate Research Scientist of City and Regional Planning, and Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley. Welcome, Laura.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're gonna start off real simple,
2: just with how would
0: you define SQL? So as an environmental law, I think it operates as an opportunity to provide notice and information to the public about potentially significant environmental impacts of what we call a project and that's defined pretty broadly to include approvals from government for different kinds of development. That's why we think about CEQA a lot in the housing space, because it applies to approvals for proposed housing development that can come from local governments. The notice and information is one part. So, right, it offers an opportunity for people to have more participation in decision-making process through information and through hearings. But there's another element that it offers an opportunity for what we call mitigation, right, to reduce potentially significant environmental impacts below a level of significance. And what that means is it can potentially prevent environmental impacts that could be adverse or bad for a community in which a project is entering.
2: I wonder if this might be a good time to sort of introduce the discretionary review and just explain a little bit like when exactly does CEQA come in does it necessarily apply to every single housing project
0: from my perspective from the work that i do one of the most important aspects of how CEQA operates it does not come into play in the approval of housing development unless the approval is what we call discretionary. And what that means is if a local government creates the opposite of that, what we call ministerial in the law, the opportunity for somebody to propose development that conforms to the law and can move through what we often refer to as an as-of-right process to approval. They can go to typically to a building department and apply for a building permit. CEQA is not going to come into play. It's not going to apply at all. So it only applies to proposed developments when the local government reserves the right to deny the request to propose the development. It's that discretionary hook that involves CEQA and local government approvals.
1: Basically, if I'm a builder, I own a piece of land, and the land is, say, zoned for 10-unit apartment complex under the law, And my plan has all the parking standards and meets all the design standards and whatever under the law. And I walk into the building department, then I shouldn't have to worry about dealing anything with CEQA. But if I decide to build, say, an 11-unit apartment complex on a piece of land that's a zone for 10, then I would have to deal with it because I'd be asking for something that was different than what the law would generally allow. Is that right?
0: I wish it was that simple. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I'm going to explain where discretionary review can apply to the first scenario you provided where you own a piece of land and you're proposing to build exactly what the zoning says you can build. And you're not asking to deviate from parking requirements and you're not asking to build more units and you're not trying to do anything different than and what the zoning ordinance already provides for. But if the jurisdiction doesn't allow for what we call a ministerial process to apply to that particular parcel, then you're still on the hook for a discretionary review. Typically, what we find is that that comes in through a site plan review or it comes in through design review or some sort of aesthetic regulation where the community is asking to review the design and it isn't specific to maybe the density or use. That's what we've discovered in our work, but it could come in through a different hook. But the point is, is in those contexts, which we find to be more often than not, CEQA will apply. If a jurisdiction, however, says, you know what? You are conforming to the zoning, you're not asking for anything different, and we do provide a ministerial process, then CEQA doesn't apply. But ultimately the decision begins with the local jurisdiction. Do they want to create a ministerial pathway to building housing or do they want everything to be discretionary?
1: You know what's interesting to me in thinking about CEQA is it's this planning law, and as just described it has all these kind of potential kind of downstream effects on the development process and has sort of even taken on kind of a mythical status in the development and political world as we're seeing many of the candidates in the recall election talking about CEQA. You know, why do you think the law has taken on this sort of symbolic status as well?
0: That's difficult for me as a lawyer to answer. I feel like that's a question that's best suited to somebody who can explore why a certain law is more politicized than another. But my best guess is that, it's a lot easier to focus on sequa, which absolutely, when it does apply in certain places, can feel really onerous and really difficult to comply with. There can be a lot of paper associated with an environmental impact report. That's sort of the most onerous long process if an environmental impact is required. And it's much, much harder to focus attention on all the different local governments in an area and to understand what their individual choices are in terms of the regulation that they're constructing and applying within the boundaries of that city or that county. It's very hard to say, these 10 jurisdictions over here are doing this, they're making all development discretionary and they're applying this design review standard to everything, even what we might call code compliant or proposed development that conforms in every way to the underlying zoning. And it might be easier to say, well, environmental view is the problem because the regulatory environment across all the different jurisdictions can vary to some degree, But CEQA is applicable to all discretionary approval processes. So that might be the one similar feature that you see across all these different places. That's a guess, again, as a lawyer, (laughs) not as somebody who's unpacking why some particular pieces are more politicized. And certainly, I think we definitely hear in the news the narrative about environmental law being in direct opposition to, say, affordable development. Right. I remember this coming up a couple of years ago with the Habitat for Humanity. That's a tension we're all sort of trying to grapple with. At what point does our need for housing and our need to address climate change and protect the environment, when do they run up against each other? So that could also, I think, draw a lot of attention or focus.
2: That's one of the questions that we were wondering during this podcast is how much of an impact would it have on housing production to somehow scrap CEQA or reform it or really scale it back. Can you walk us a little bit through the research that you have done and peel back how much of an impact this environmental law actually has on production?
0: So I think the first question you asked was, if we remove CEQA, would we see potentially an uptick in production or would it change the circumstances we're grappling with now? And my short answer is probably not. And so now I'll get into the long answer of why I say that. And I need to qualify it with, of course, my colleagues and I at Berkeley, we've done research in this point, 28 jurisdictions across California. That does include eight of the 10 largest cities. And it absolutely includes jurisdictions in the areas in which I think collectively We've been saying we want to see more development the infill areas that are closer to transit that are closer to the economic centers of our state the challenge that we observe is that pretty much across the board the majority of all proposed development of five or more units of housing goes through a discretionary process to begin with so that means that those 28 jurisdictions are making the decision to process the proposals for housing that are coming into their cities through discretionary process. And that's what causes CEQA to apply. The second reason that it doesn't seem to be a really CEQA-driven problem is we're not actually seeing frequent use of the most onerous CEQA, you know, clients' pathways. If you are applying environmental review to a proposed development, and you're thinking about an environmental impact report, I think, collectively, we understand, like, that's a pretty intensive process for environmental review. But most of what we're seeing isn't going through a process that requires an environmental impact report. So we're starting with the fact that over 80% of all the proposed developments that we've studied, and that's over 2,000 proposed developments that would yield many, many more housing units than that, already are in a discretionary process. And then on top of that, even though they're in a discretionary process, most of them are not requiring an environmental impact report. So they're not going through the most intensive process. So Take away CEQA, you're still dealing with discretionary review. You're still dealing with the local jurisdiction reserving the right to deny approval of the proposed development. You're still dealing with all of the local requirements to basically get to entitlement. Entitlement means the right to go to the building department and request the building permit typically. And so you ask me like, okay, you remove CEQA. Then my thought is, well, why wouldn't we assume a local jurisdiction wouldn't put back in a similar requirement? It's already discretionary. They're already imposing their various requirements on the proposed development. Why wouldn't they just insert another level of review that takes the place of what was removed if you take away the state environmental review?
1: So a requirement like to have a certain number of meetings or a requirement to address further design issues or more parking or analysis of potential wetland. You're saying there could be very easily find an alternative that would essentially function the same way.
0: Why not? They've already made the decision at the first instance that the proposed development is going to go through a discretionary process, which means that they're making the choice to reserve the right to say no, they've designed the process, they've designed the number of public hearings that they've required, the different types of standards and thresholds that the proposed development needs to meet in order to get through each of those steps. And CEQA is one part of that, but it's only one part of many steps to get to entitlement. So it seems like the focus on CEQA doesn't actually address the underlying issue, which is CEQA wouldn't even apply to, you know, that over 80% of those proposed developments in the first place if the jurisdiction had made a decision at the front end that they wanted to allow development that met certain goals, maybe for their city or their county, right, to move through a ministerial process, an as-of-right process. Had they made that choice, CEQA would have never applied. They have that choice,
2: In summarizing some of the research that you and your colleagues did, you explained to me how some of the geographic differences in an approval for a project, and one example stood out to me of Oakland taking about five months on average compared with more than two years in San Francisco, even though CEQA is a state law that applies to all of these jurisdictions. Can you explain a little bit there some of the variations that you found across cities, and why it is that something can take so much longer in one city versus another.
0: So you called out one of the most, I think, stark contrasts that exists within our data set, because you're talking about neighboring jurisdictions. And if you were to do a deeper dive into our findings, you'd also discover that they utilize some of the same processes for environmental review compliance, right? Like so you get through CEQA, they apply many of the same different systems in terms of both exemptions or tiering and so on. So we found, for example, that that big difference existed even for proposed developments that used identical environmental review pathways, and that was pretty shocking for us. That's what let us know that there was a lot happening at the local level in terms of variation, in terms of how they apply the state law. The why is difficult to answer. So what our data shows us is that there's a lot of variation across the jurisdictions we've studied in terms of what we call median timeframes or average timeframes. You could take either, but we often rely on the median and they range so great. So San Francisco is by far on the longest timeframe of all of the 28 jurisdictions we've studied so far. The median is always over two years. And that holds true even when a proposed development for multifamily housing is code compliant. Getting back to the scenario that Liam, that you spoke about earlier, where the developer isn't asking for anything different than what the underlying ordinance calls for. There's no ask for a variance. There's no ask for doing anything different with parking. And it still takes over two years is the median. Yeah. Wow. I think that the range is so great. You know, you see five months is a median in Oakland and Sacramento is about six months. And then all of a sudden you get to San Jose and it's 16 and San Francisco is over two years. And where you are, Santa Monica is 16 months as well. It's really a tremendous range across these jurisdictions. And so that says something about how they're applying their local law as well as the requirements within the local jurisdiction. The difficulty of trying to tease out the why is it's not easy to answer, for example, by just looking at the approvals that they've required of the proposed development when you're talking about a proposed development that conforms to everything the law asks for. Then you have to ask the question is, what is the political process? Like, what is the non-law factor that's playing a role in why it's taking two years, for example, in San Francisco, as opposed to five months in Oakland or six months in Sacramento or nine months in Los Angeles? Right. That's such a big difference that you have to think, actually, that maybe it's not even necessarily just a planning department process, that maybe there's something much more significant there because this isn't about asking for anything different than what the law is already requiring of the development.
1: So I'm going to throw the million dollar question at you a little bit early. Moira, a uh, sequa, good or bad? Good. Explain.
0: I don't mean to suggest that it does serve close look and thought about reform and making it better in terms of making sure that it's not used in a way that's inconsistent with what policymakers intended it for. But notice and information about potential and significant environmental impacts is pretty critical to, I think, everyone right now. Like climate change is here. Climate events are significant. We deal with tremendous risks in the state of California. I think that bringing... Potential impacts below a significant level is pretty important in that context. I think communities want to have information about risks in terms of environmental impacts. And we know that environmental justice issues would demand that we do have information about risks from environmental impacts from any proposed project or development, whether that's infrastructure, transportation, placement of a highway somewhere, or public transportation. And the other reason I think it's good is because I think it is possible to remove it as a regulatory step or a process you have to comply with at the individual proposal level. Like, an individual proposed development doesn't have to be subject to CEQA if a jurisdiction makes a decision that that proposed development already is consistent with what they're looking for within their jurisdiction. Like, we can make those choices as a community before we get to the proposed development point in time. So it doesn't have to be what I think it's talked about in the popular press.
1: So I'm glad you brought up climate change because I wanted to ask you know, about this. I mean, this law of 1970s when it first passed and One of the biggest, I think, kind of good faith criticisms I see of it is that it was a law kind of very much of its time in terms of treating the existing state of the world as sort of natural and good, and therefore assuming any new projects would have these negative environmental effects that would need to be dealt with. And you can see some of the issues with this in terms of CEQA's tolerance, say, for existing highways, but potentially voluminous and time-consuming environmental documents that need to be completed for new bus lanes or mass transit or even the high-speed rail project. In other words, some development does seem to be unequivocally better for the environment than what we have now, but the Suka process doesn't seem to be kind of flexible enough to take that into account. To what extent do you think the law needs to be changed or discussed or thought about in terms of perhaps adapting more towards concerns about how to build infrastructure to deal with climate change?
0: So I think in the first part of that, I heard sort of a concern about its inflexibility. And one of the things I would say is that as a statute, it allows for exemptions. There's a possibility for categorical exemptions. There's a possibility for flexibility in terms of how it is applied and how people meet the environmental review requirements. I think what you're calling out in how you describe that would be if there's an area of reform, thinking critically about how the current exemptions are mindful of changing circumstances. I think that goes both ways, though. I think you're right that on the one hand, we know that we need infrastructure that's responsive to current climate change-related impacts. But we also understand that we need tools to help us in our land use, planning and zoning to be mindful of issues that we're facing right now, like wildfire hazards and so on. So we need flexibility, I think, in two different directions. Like we need to be able to have the ability to build the types of projects and the types of systems to allow us to live safely in the places where we think we can have more housing, have more transit, but we also need to be careful and mindful of how we develop in places that are at risk or face increased hazards with respect to like wildfire. I think of that as the most prominent, of course. And I think that to the extent that CEQA requires more review and reform, I think it gets at the heart of what you just said. It's that we look carefully to see whether or not we need to update our categorical exemptions, whether or not we need to update guidelines associated with complying with CEQA through the planning process. All of that, though, doesn't take away from the utility of that law in general. Like, just because we may need to update it and improve upon it and potentially even increase opportunities to quicken review processes for desirable development in locations where we've determined it is the most safe for us to build doesn't take away from the value that that statute continues to offer. I think at the beginning of your statement, you mentioned how it was developed at a time in a different context, except that I think today in 2021 we're seeing we are once again in a different context than I think we were even in a decade ago in terms of how critical we need to be as we plan and as we develop our land use mechanisms, like whether it's ordinances or whether it's our plans or specific plans. I mean, we're facing a myriad of challenges and we're also facing a lack of housing supply the same time so
1: you're saying like look we've decided society like a bike lane is good and environmentally friendly then we can write a law right away or write an exemption or a process into CEQA that makes that quick fast easily done and we can make building a highway much harder done you know require stronger mitigation but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to throw out CEQA we could CEQA is flexible enough is what you're saying to deal with both of those scenarios is that right
0: I think that's exactly what I'm saying. The legislature, it can start there. They can definitely do big picture sort of changes like that, like you described, where there's one type of development is preferable and it's understood that this is advantageous. And if they've observed that people have used CEQA in a way to obstruct bike lane, which I think there is actually a very famous example of that, (laughs) they can respond accordingly. And when we know that we have a history of environmental injustice with respect to major transportation networks, we can maintain review at a certain level and depth so that communities are on notice and have the power to participate in making sure that they are not overburdened by the consequences of that transportation investment. And then simultaneously, we have a system in place where we have personnel that create guidelines to then help, in turn, the local level planning departments to implement CEQA in a way to be responsive to both of those concerns and many more. And none of that means that we don't necessarily need to reform CEQA. It just suggests that it isn't valuable to just dump the law altogether because of concerns about it obstructing, for example affordable housing supply or housing supply in infill areas that would be desirable for climate change. The point I want to return to on that one is I don't think you would achieve the goal that you were hoping for by getting rid of CEQA. I don't think you would actually get to the production you were hoping for by eliminating environmental review. And you'd be throwing out what can be a very useful tool for providing critical information about significant environmental impacts to communities who need that information. And you'd be throwing out an opportunity to have a flexible tool to mitigate against significant environmental impacts. And that flexibility that CEQA offers, it is general in that sense. Like it's applicable across the board and can reduce significant environmental impacts of many kinds. That's useful.
2: So we've talked about how might not have that much of an impact, but it seems from your research that all of these local positions on housing can, at the same time, many of the recall candidates have been pretty straightforward in saying that they would not want to mess with local control and that they want to leave housing and zoning decisions really up to local jurisdictions. How much of an impact do you think that a governor can really have on housing production if they're not willing to push back on that element?
0: So I think the first thing we can acknowledge is that the politics around trying to do anything about local control are really difficult. And I think both of you may know that even better than me. Given the past several years and all of the detail that have gone into legislative proposals, right, to limit local control over specific classes of proposed development in very specific locations that meet a range of criteria, as opposed to sort of just dismantling local control completely. And yet, those proposals haven't passed. So I think there's a massive political hurdle there. You know, I do think it's a difficult challenge just generally for a governor to overcome that political hurdle just as an outside observer. Because I, in the research that I'm doing with my colleagues, I repeatedly see how local regulation is the dominant theme in every jurisdiction we study in terms of regulatory obstacles might be in the way of increasing development that would potentially offer density, density near transportation or density near opportunity. But I don't see substantial transition in terms of that political challenge. I haven't seen that change too much. So I wonder broadly what governor would really be able to do about that issue just because you would have to have the state legislature in agreement that it was time to revisit the issue and do something about what I would call pretty sweeping, like, local... I mean, local control is... It's very broad. I mean, you have neighboring jurisdictions that have completely different systems. So a developer who wants to work in the region would have to learn each system every time they went in. So there's that issue.
2: Independent of the political feasibility, how much of an impact have you found that local control has on housing production?
0: Local control... controls. (laughs) controls. <laughs> I mean, it controls ultimately production. So it's not the area of research that my colleagues and I dive into, but others do. Others have talked about construction costs, labor issues and so on, land costs and so on. But you can't get to the building department to request a building permit if you don't get the property you're working with entitled in the first place. And that's what we study, right? That first step. So we study What do local governments require in order to even have permission to proceed to deal with all of the other factors that play a role in production? Then, you know, construction costs come in. Do you have sufficient labor and so on? Well, on the entitlement front, they're controlling that process. And we're seeing the vast majority of most proposed development, over 80 percent of the proposed development that we've studied, went through a process where the jurisdiction reserved the right to say no. And in some cases, some of that proposed development had to navigate a process of many years to get to the yes of entitlement, to give them the permission to now go to the building department to request the building permit to put shovels in the ground. begin the construction process so that you lead to production. So it's all of these steps in the process and local regulation controls those steps in the process. They control the entitlement process, they control the building permit process, they control all of that. So if you're asking political challenges aside, (laughs) what can you do about production without tackling local control? I don't know that you can do much about production without tackling local control. And that's not a popular opinion for some politicians, because I think local control over land is really important to communities. If you think about what that means for a neighborhood at the neighborhood level, and I think that's across the board, that's not exclusive to people who are wealthy. I think people care about the built environment that they live in, and they want to have some say-so in it. And local control affords people an opportunity to have some say-so over their built environment. The challenge we see in the study that we've done is that when you have so much local regulation requiring discretionary approval at the project level, you're allowing for input. It's sort of like every stage of what leads to your built environment. So you've got input at the planning level, You've got input over what the plan says you can do within your jurisdiction, maybe even over a specific plan, maybe over the zoning, although we didn't see very much rezoning. And then on top of that, you now are bringing in input at an individual proposed development. So you're bringing in input again. And so that creates a lot of process. And then depending on how many times you're creating opportunities for public hearings and opportunities for input, you're creating a lengthier process. So all of that impacts production because you have to get to that final approval where there is no more process, no more sort of discretionary yes or no before you can go and begin the construction process.
1: So Moira, anything else that you think could be good for us to know or want to impart to our very vast and influential, as you know, -know, well-know audience?
0: So with respect to challenges under CEQA, I think we read about them a lot. Like litigation under CEQA is something that can make headlines, and particularly if CEQA litigation is used to oppose a proposal to develop housing that we care about for important reasons like affordability. If an affordable housing project is dealing with a CEQA claim, I don't think that sits well with any of us that care a lot about affordability, even if we also care about the environment. What we found, though, is that of the over 2,000 proposed developments that we studied, less than 3% of them actually faced litigation under CEQA. And then in the bucket of proposed development that actually faced litigation, 70% were also including claims under local law. So strip away CEQA, and you still have all those local land use claims that are going to court. I think the other big issue is getting back to the heart of, well, when does CEQA apply? CEQA applies when you apply a discretionary process, and it doesn't apply when you you apply what we call a ministerial process, often referred to as an as-of-right process. Well, of the jurisdictions we've studied, only a handful actually had a ministerial process on the books. And what I mean is, if you were to read their ordinances under the law as it is written, some of them had an as-of-right process. But even among the jurisdictions that had that in writing, we only had one city out of all of those that we studied where we had a critical number of proposed developments that were approved through that ministerial process. That was Los Angeles. Every other city, everything was approved through a discretionary process, or it could have been a discretionary process, but the data was unclear. So over 80%, though, of... All of the developments that we studied, we know went through a discretionary process. And that means that even in jurisdictions that might write a law that allows for an as-of-right process, that doesn't mean they're necessarily using it. So again, that speaks to the jurisdiction's choice to create a process where CEQA applies in the first place. Because... If CEQA doesn't apply, you're not going to get to the CEQA challenge or the CEQA litigation. You're not going to get to any of that.
1: All right. Well, Moira, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us.
0: That was great. Thank you for having me. So, Thank you for listening.
1: As always, we would like you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and other podcast services. This is important if you haven't done it yet so that new people can discover us. Um, Our editor, as always, extraordinaire, Victor Figueroa. Thank you so much, Victor. My name is Liam Dillon. I'm with the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at DillonLiam.
2: And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is ManuelaTobiasM. Thank you for listening.